Would you join with me in prayer, please? Our Father, now this evening we look to you in faith, asking for your rich blessing to fall on us. We humble ourselves before you, O God, and we confess our enduring need of you. Many of us came to you in faith in conversion for a first time some years ago, and we confessed our need of you then, and so we confess our need of you now. We would pray that you would draw us heavenward this evening. As we come into this text, we ask that you would fall on us, your servants at this church this evening as we worship you, that we would humble ourselves and hide ourselves and quiet ourselves before you, that we should hear from you. Bless us richly now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you turn your, in your Bibles this evening to Hebrews and the chapter 12? Hebrews and the 12th chapter. As you turn in there, three years ago, um, I had the gracious opportunity to take a sabbatical. I'd been at my church out west at that time for um, 11, I guess, yes, 11 years it was. And my congregation and my session graciously gave me the opportunity to take two or three months off that summer. And so, since I have such a small family with seven children, we decided we would drive across the country. So we drove in a motorhome that we had from California to Pennsylvania. And it was a lovely trip, it really was. Um, about halfway or so across the country, we came to this city that I knew virtually nothing about called Amarillo, Texas. The only thing I knew about Amarillo, Texas was that it was the subject of a country music song, Amarillo by Morning. And as we got into this town, I actually found it to be a very delightful town. I thought it was very pretty and beautiful and nice homes and nice scenery and that sort of thing. And I kept seeing a sign for a steak restaurant. I don't remember the name of the steak restaurant in Amarillo, Texas, but it was big and it was Texas style and everything in it was big and Texas style and they boasted themselves to have America's largest steak. And so we stopped. And as we went in, you enter into this restaurant through a, a cowboy boot, boots about as tall as this sanctuary, and then that's the doors, and there's all sorts of interesting things in there, and, and, uh, and there, as you wait in line to be seated, um, there, is, there is a steak that's on display that you can buy and eat. I exaggerate not when I tell you it is somewhere around this size, and it was a five-pound steak. And if you're eager and very hungry, um, and maybe a glutton for punishment, you can buy this steak for a dollar a pound. Well, I didn't order that steak, but I ordered a different steak, and it was the size of this. And the bread that came was the size of this, and everything about it was monstrously massive. And it was a full meal. We left there, we waddled our way out, continued our trip. Three years later, I don't think I've lost all the weight from that dinner. 
This evening we come to Hebrews chapter 12 and we step into a full meal. By God's kind grace, what I've been praying for you as a congregation, for me, for this church, is that this evening we would waddle our way out of here full of the word of truth. This evening we step away from Exodus chapter 20, which we're going to consider next week. But even as I say that, that's not entirely true. Because Hebrews 12, at least our portion of it, simultaneously takes us back to Sinai. It takes us back to Mount Sinai, back to the giving of the law, which we're going to look at in some detail beginning next week, and takes us by the hand and leads us forward into Mount Zion. It will take us back to Sinai and forward to Zion all at once, all at the same time. Now, what's this all about, this quasi-cryptic sounding code language? Well, I want you to grab that Trinity hymnal that's in front of you and turn to number 172. On occasion, I'm asked, what's my favorite hymn? Of course, that's an impossible question to answer, you know. But among them, anytime I give an answer, is number 172. Let us love and sing and wonder, and you will undoubtedly not remember that we actually sang this hymn last week. Look at those opening words in this majestic hymn. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. That's old language of saying he has brought us near to God. That's why I say this is a full meal. That's what is this chapter of Hebrews is all about. Really, one might fairly say that's what the entire book of Hebrews is all about. That he has hushed the law's loud thunder. And he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. By way of a little background then, the book of Hebrews is famously written by somebody that we don't know who it was. There are endless reasons to support the idea that it was written by this person or that. Maybe it was the Apostle Paul. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was somebody else. We really don't know. Endless speculation and endless good reasons for selecting whichever one you want. Really, in God's kind providence, we don't know. Clearly, God has said in his mystery, you'll not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. But we do know this, that the author is writing to a Hebrew congregation. These are Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians. And among the purposes of this letter, don't miss this, just simultaneously doctrinal in scope and also highly pastoral. These things go together. In fact, they cannot be thought of separately. It is doctrinal in scope and it is highly pastoral in tone. And that actually explains its purpose. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 
That's the grid. That's the paradigm. I want you to think about this text that we'll engage with tonight. It is written to ground the congregation in the deep things of God. That's why we have this book. It is written to ground the congregation in the deep things of God and doing so with the loving touch of a faithful pastor. That's why I love the book of Hebrews. I've always loved the book. I loved it. I had the uh, a great uh, joy to preach through the, the whole book of Hebrews. And over and over and over again, you come back to this great, rich, doctrinal scope that takes the people of God deeply into the things of God, but does so with the kind and gentle, loving hands of a faithful pastor and shepherd. And that's what's happening here. Because remember, these early New Testament Christians have given up their former religion. Set in the context here, I want you to think about what we're going to interact with, with the, the perspective of these first century Jewish Christians. They have given up their former religion. I use that term in its purest sense. And make no mistake about it, whether you came to Christ, if you're a Christian this evening, then you came to Christ from some other religion. Maybe there was a practicing religion with a place that you went to, and you came out of that into Christ, like me. Or maybe some of you were, were unbelievers, you had no religion whatsoever. Make no mistake about it, you left the former religion that you practiced called secular humanism, and you came to Christ. And these people, these early New Testament Jewish believers are leaving their former religion with all of its traditions. They have left the faith of their fathers. And all of the language and ceremonies and practices and the language that was used, the terms, all of these, they left all of that believing that this Jesus, this Man from Nazareth really is the fulfillment of all that was prophesied concerning this Messiah. So that when they profess their faith in Christ, when they place their faith in Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, he had better be superior than their former religion. And by way of practical exhortation, as we just you know, set, the, set the table here, you had better believe. You had better believe and learn to practice believing that Jesus Christ really is worth your highest devotion. You would better believe that Jesus Christ really is better than anything the world has to offer you, that he really is your highest good and your chief possession, or you will stumble and you will fall away. And that's why this author to the book of Hebrews, to the congregation of the Hebrews, goes out of his way to press Jesus Christ untowards them. That's what a pulpit ministry is all about, to press Jesus Christ untowards a people, to keep going, 
to keep trusting him, to keep laying at the foot of that cross all your earthly desires that Jesus Christ should increase and you should decrease all the more. Keep resting your soul in him. Keep staking your eternity on him. Difficult life situations and all. And so, it's why we lean into the book of Hebrews. This is our book. This is our story. And Hebrews 12 is gonna build for us a, 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 a platform by which we as a congregation will begin to interact with the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. So with all that background, I want you to have all of that Background. That's the grid I want you to look at this chapter, these verses, beginning in verse 18, Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched. That is a blazing fire and a darkness, gloom, tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This evening, we have two points and then three more. Two doctrinal points that I want to make that we draw from this text that cannot be escaped, that must be learned and applied and as somebody has said in the previous generation, inwardly digested. And I want to give to you three pastoral words. If you're a note taker then, the first point you want to note is that we will consider Mount Sinai as a holy separation. Those of you that were with us last week will recognize the imagery here. You recall that we learned about the holiness of God, the fearful holiness of God as presented at Mount Sinai. 
And you recall how God had told Moses in the 19th chapter of Exodus. That's, that's, the, that's the, the, the holy mountain chapter. How he had told Moses, even the beasts that belong to Israel, they shall not go up on the mountain while God is making his visitation there. God is coming to Moses and by extension from Moses to all the people, he is making his divine visitation there. So holy, so fearful, so awesome is God. Awe-inspiring Full of awe is God that no, no man, no beast of the field may even approach the mountain into which God is descending. Don't do it, God says. Don't go up there. Why? Because God is too much for you. God is too much for you. And so you shall not go there. I will send to you a mediator, Moses. He shall go there. You shall not. As a matter of fact, God had even instructed them lest they test the limits. I love this in Exodus 19, verse 12. Here's the scene. God had said, all right, here's this mountain. You shall not take a step up on that mountain. You shall not ascend the mountain by even a step. Neither man nor beast. Well, you know what man is gonna do. You know full well what man's gonna do, okay? Here's the mountain. See this brown part here? Man's gonna go like this. Don't ascend the mountain. Have I ascended the mountain now? And they're always going to test the limit. That's what, that's what man does best. Whatever God says to do in his word, the most natural instinct of man is to press the very limits. You don't believe me, then you don't have children. <laughs> and so God said to them, set up a boundary. Set up a boundary over there. Set up this boundary out there and do not cross even that boundary for I have instructed you, you shall not ascend this mountain lest you die. And then the law is given in Exodus 20, which we'll begin to address next week. And then there is this. Look back at Exodus 20 for a moment. This is what happens just after the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. This is what Hebrews 12, 18 and following is referencing and picking up. As I read this passage, I want you to pay attention to the gravity, to the weight of how it first hit the people of God. Exodus 20, also verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, right? This is just after the giving of the law. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. What, what must their experience have been? How fearful and awesome must this God have been? What must have happened to you for that to be your response? Do not let God even speak to us. 
Because if he speaks to us, so holy is he that if he speaks to us, we will die. You do not trifle with the holiness of God. If there is one problem with the evangelical church in America, I can recall some years ago out west, somebody that went to my church worked for a radio station and TV station, uh, and they called me to ask to do a little interview. And they said to me, there was some, it was a uh, secular, regular television channel, but they had some kind of religious block. And so they were interviewing me and they asked, um, what is it that you think is the one thing that uh, is, is, is plaguing the modern evangelical church? And I said, we trifle with the holiness of God. We have lost, I fear, an apprehension of the holiness of God. Here they are. They have just seen all that God has done. These are the wilderness, these are the people that saw the Exodus. They saw Moses do all that he did with Pharaoh. He threw sticks, they turned to snakes, they ate other snakes, he, he strikes a rock, water. The Exodus event itself, thunders and lightnings, they're starting to get it. Do not let him speak to us, lest we die. We cannot survive even his voice. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. There's a banner that hangs over this text. You remember on 9-11, don't you? When those firemen climbed to the top of the Pentagon while it was smoldering here and they, they draped this big flag that unfurled this message to the world as this flag unfurled down below. There was an unfurling banner that hangs over this text and it thunders with holiness. When you read the parallel passage in Deuteronomy 5, there's a sense of amazement from Israel that they're even alive in the presence of God at all. It's one of those defining moments for Israel that gives shape to their very existence, all their traditions, all their sense of identity as a people. I was visiting with a friend of mine who for many years was a missionary in Peru. In fact, I think our church supported him. He's now planting a church in Miami, but when he was in Peru for many years, uh, our church out west uh, supported him as well. And when he was visiting, um, he told me that the Peruvians as a people have never won a single war. And that shapes their sense of who they are as a people. Every people has things that shape their sense of identity and who they are, don't they? We as Americans have that in spades. We are shaped by our fighting spirit. 
From the Revolutionary War through World War II and beyond, we are shaped by our struggles with issues relating to economic depressions and racial tensions and national pastimes and so on. Israel as a people was shaped by Sinai. Everything about them is conditioned by the God who showed up on that mountain, declared himself to be holy, declared himself to be the great I am, and declared himself to be their God. And when God appeared to Moses, from the people it was, don't let him speak to us. Don't let him speak to us lest we die. So holy is he. He has to be separate. So much so, let us build a boundary around this mountain so that we don't cross over into his holiness and die there. Mount Sinai represents the place of holy separation. You don't dare draw near to the holiness of God while stained by the presence of sin. That's why Hebrews 12, verse 19, picks it up. They begged that no further message be spoken to them. There was fear in their soul. For Sinai was a place of holy separation. In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, the great Puritan John Owen referred to this simply as the severity of God. The severity of God. Why so severe? Because Sinai was the law which lays open the wound of human sin. And the people could not bear it. Now, here's the thing by way of implication for you. Does God's holiness have such an effect on you? When you gaze on his holiness through the lens of your own sin and your own sin tendencies, if you are not moved in your soul at the very presence of God, if his holiness, his descending holiness, the very thought of his holiness doesn't make you stagger, then perhaps you have begun the slow process of hardening yourself against God and your own sin. We sing about it. You think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. It is the word. The Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. In the presence of God, the people were afraid and they trembled. 
the word in the original would be pronounced something like nuah. And it means to stagger. It means to stagger, to quake in the inner chambers of one's soul. The law of God reveals the holiness of God and thus lays open the wound of human sin. It is a wound that refuses to be self-cured. And it compels the people of God to be still before him. The author to the book of Hebrews understood this. And he's been laying this on his people. He's been laying it on us. We are his people. And then he says in verse 22, but, however, something different now, you have come not to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, no less holy. In fact, more so. If Sinai reveals a holy separation, then the banner over this portion of the text is that Zion is a holy presence of God. If Mount Sinai represented a holy separation, God is holy, he is other, he is over there, we are here. Then Mount Zion represents that God has come near to us. Thomas Boston said it like this, the law lays open the wound, but it is the gospel that heals. The law lays open the wound, but it is the gospel that heals as awesome as Mount Sinai was. For these Hebrew Christians who grew up all their life memorizing all of this, celebrating traditions and festivals and singing psalms and chanting things that all referenced back to the things that shaped their identity, like Mount Sinai. Now these Christians, you have come to something better even than that. You have come to the city of the living God, to the angels and festal gatherings. The imagery could hardly be more stark There's a great deal of continuity between the Old Covenant and the New. There is no doubt about it. One of the things that we in this Reformed tradition that we all find ourselves in celebrate rightly is that there are continuities between the Old Covenant and the New. It's what helps give shape to some of our theological trajectories. But we often downplay the discontinuities between the old and the new. And here is one of these places where there is discontinuity between the old covenant and the new because there is a sense of advancement. And among those things is the distinction between Sinai and Zion. Sinai represented holiness and fear in law. Zion, holiness and gladness and a better mediator of a better covenant. God is no less holy in the administration of the new covenant. In fact, as I've already hinted, the severity of holiness 
is advanced. Lest you think the conclusion to all this is that God is unconcerned then with his law and with holiness. It is not the mountain that was called a consuming fire. It is God himself in the administration of the new covenant that is called a consuming fire. The severity of God's holiness is advanced in the new covenant, which makes it more, more lovely. Can I say it like that? Which makes it all the more lovely that we have come to him through Jesus The, the, the advancement of God's holiness in the new covenant makes it all the more lovely that we have come to God through Jesus Christ, mediator, superior even to Moses, superior even to all things of the old covenant. It's interesting here that the personal human name of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is mentioned, highlighting his saving grace. We have come through the sprinkled blood in verse 24. The picture could hardly be more stunning than Sinai. It's holy separation characterized by fear and staggering. Zion its holy presence characterized by joy and perfection. You have come to the general assembly, festal gathering of the saints. What happens to the Christian who begins to lose sight of what he's been brought to. I've lived here for two years in North Carolina. Many of you have asked if I've enjoyed the mountains. The mountains, that's cute. For many years, we lived at the base of the Sierra Nevada mountains, which are notorious for their extreme elevation. They go straight up and they go straight back down again. We lived in the city of Fresno, elevation was 200 feet. And in one hour drive time, we would be at 9,000 feet. In one particular late afternoon, we were heading back down. We used to go up there to breathe clean air. I don't trust air, I can't see. So I'd go up to those mountains and clean out our lungs a little bit and we were driving back down out of the sequoias, those giant trees, you know, the big redwoods, General Grant and so on. Late afternoon, I had the window down, it was summertime. And as I wind down to the right, I drifted a little too close to the inner part of my lane. And coming up around that same corner was somebody else. And he was driving a pickup truck, towing a trailer full of kayaks for whitewater rafting. And he also, like me, had long extension mirrors. And he drifted a little too close to the inner part of his lane. And at about 35 miles an hour each, so about a 70 mile an hour collision, our mirrors collided. My window was down, my arm was out, as was his. I thought my arm fell off. 
We slowed down a little bit. There's nothing to do. We looked at each other and kind of, you know, okay. And we just went on our way. <laughs> For five years, I drove that camper with a shattered driver's side mirror. I couldn't fix it. I could fix just about everything, but I could not fix that. I drove that from California to Pennsylvania, back to California again, to North Carolina, with a shattered mirror out my left driver's side window, not to mention untold trips throughout California, Colorado, Arizona. I was an expert because I found a little triangular piece of that mirror amidst all the chaos that I could trust. I was an expert. The mirror was a thousand pieces. How it never fell out of this little casing, I still don't know. It's pretty impressive, actually. And there was this little triangular piece that was big enough to use, and I could maneuver that thing and back up and change lanes and do everything else flawlessly, if I do say so myself. Let me say a word to three of you this evening that need to find that pure, undefiled piece of clear vision in the midst of things that are shattered and chaotic and exhort you to keep your focus on Zion, the place of holy nearness and the joy of the Lord purchased for you the blood of Christ. First, let me speak to the wandering and to the wondering. Perhaps some of you have joined us this evening for reasons that you don't understand. A friend invited you or perhaps a relative compelled you. Perhaps you found your soul restless and wandering Mount Zion, let me invite you to this place of permanence, this place of unshakable permanence. What is held out to you in the person of Jesus Christ is an unshakable kingdom in which all sinners are pronounced to be saints and they are made perfect by the blood of the lamb. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn. Because here's the thing, Jesus rose from the grave and he ushered in this whole new kingdom that can never be shaken. How can it be shaken? How can the dwelling place of the eternal God together with his saints be shaken by anything if death itself could not hold him? If you wander through the pilgrim days of this life, I want you to know that the supremacy of Jesus Christ is over all things and guarantees that no sinner is beyond the reach of a kingdom that has no end. Because Sinai was a shadow and Zion is the reality. Second, let me speak a word to the hurting and to the sorrowful. Many of you perhaps in the sanctuary this size are growing weary of the Sunday smile because it is not well with you just now. 
anxieties, depression, loss, disappointment, embarrassment. A friend of mine is in prison, and while in prison, his mother died, and the letter that he sent was very short. It was all capitals, and all it said was, I am so ashamed. Chemotherapy. I was just speaking this week with a friend with whom I went to high school. We're in our mid-40s. He is a single father. His children, like mine, range from high school to elementary school. And he was diagnosed with cancer. Single father with little ones. This text is about a promise that cannot be shaken. Because it's about coming to one who can be touched who was touched. It's about coming to one who freely said to his friends, touch me, see? This text is about coming to one who can be touched, you understand? What these Hebrew Christians have, what you and I have, the saints at the base of Mount Sinai would long to have. What we have is something far superior. Even to them, they looked at God through that cloud and they heard the thunderings. What we have are better covenants based on better promises. Like festal gatherings. Joy in the person of God. We have gladness because this text tells us we have been made perfect by the law keeper, he who descended from that mountain and kept the law perfectly. Perhaps the author of the Hebrews had Isaiah 35, 10 in mind, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Yes, at the sight of God, the sound of his people, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And third, let me say a word to those of you who are shaken by a sense of uncertainty. I am you. I am you. I hate uncertainty. I'd much rather exercise complete and unrivaled dominion in the world of my own influence. But God is simply too good to share his sovereignty with us. And so some of you live with uncertainties. I suppose I could list untold numbers of them, financial insecurities, relational stress, dissolving marriages, Aging parents, children who reject things most precious to you, on and on and on it goes. And you have come to a mediator. You have come to a mediator of a new and better covenant. Better because it is founded on those promises that are even better than what was made through Moses to the people. Do you see the author of the Hebrews is writing to Christians and he is saying to them, I I want you to apprehend what is held out to you. Do not refuse him who speaks to you. 
just in the prayer room before worship. Some of us were praying as we always do and somebody prayed that we would be hidden behind the cross of Christ. What is held out to you is a mediator. It is he who speaks to you this evening. It is not the preacher to whom you must listen or with whom you must deal. It is our God, the consuming fire. It is he who speaks to you. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks to you. For what he has for you is holiness and gladness. This evening, I want you to forget all things. And I want you to think only of Christ, who stands at the end of your pew and asks the probing question, have you come to the better place? Have you come to the sprinkled blood of Jesus? That's why we gather, isn't it? That you may once again be placed on solid ground. Come to him, all you, and be glad. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have dealt very briefly with a text that is a full meal. It is impossible for us fully and completely to deal with the promises held out to us here. But oh, how I pray, oh God, by your spirit, you would begin chipping away, softening us, that we might gladly come to what is better, that we might learn from you at Mount Sinai. We might learn of your holiness. We might run in pursuit of your holiness, knowing that you are not separate any longer, that you have advanced that holiness and that we may come to you by faith and be glad. How I pray, O oh Father, that your spirit would descend upon this congregation. Draw us into your holiness, the splendor of your presence, and make us glad. We commend our evening to you. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.